0: morning's Bible readings from Exodus 12, uh, 1 to 13, and then we'll jump to 28 to 30, and that can be found on pages 66 and 67. So starting Exodus 12, verse 1, on page 66. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats." Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the head "'Legs and internal organs. "'Do not leave any of it till morning. "'If some is left till morning, you must burn it. "'This is how you are to eat it, "'with your cloak tucked into your belt, "'your sandals on your feet, "'and your staff in your hand. "'Eat it in haste. "'It is the Lord's Passover. "'On that same night, I will pass through Egypt "'and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, "'and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. "'I am the Lord.' The blood will be a sign for you on the household where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Moving down to verse 28. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone
1: dead. All right, me again. Hey, uh, listen, I just need a second to get uh, set up. While I'm doing that, could you um, just reopen your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12? We'll be speaking from that. That'll be most helpful. Just one moment. I'm going to pray and then uh, we're going to watch a short video because you like watching videos. You like watching videos? I like watching videos. And then uh, then we'll get down underway. Let me pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you for your scriptures. One of your many blessings and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest of all your blessings that you've given to us. So help us learn more about him through the scriptures that we might become more like him and in that way honour you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ah. Warsaw, winter ninety six minus seventeen, and not a char grill chop in sight. That was no way to spend Australia Day. We'll never let that happen to another Australian again. Commence Operation Boomerang. Right now, there's
0: thousands of Australians stranded overseas. The snowball's chance in hell of eating lamb on Australia Day. Let's go get them.
1: My finger's warm. That's bad. Let's go. I like I was else We're bringing you home for Australia, Day. Uh. You've been here three months. It's time to go home. Well, <laughs> mate. A few hours, you'll be eating lamb on the beach. But I'm a vegan now. Aboard, Get him out of there. Vegans. From backyard cricket. Gary, get out of the pool. We're coming home, folks, and not a minute too soon. The
0: Kokomura has landed. So, are we smelling the lamb?
1: Yes, Prime Minister, the
0: barbecue is lit. Well done. Well done. Never.
1: I reckon uh, Australians are pretty partial to lamb, aren't we? (laughs) Uh, Certainly on Australia Day, but I mean all year round pretty much. You know, we're not the only country which loves the delicious red meat. Uh, If you were an Israelite in Old Testament times or a Jew today, lamb is very important. Can I say, if you're a Christian and lamb is not your favourite animal... Something has to change. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to blow blowtorch your apartment like that poor vegan. <laughs> How funny is Lee Li Lin Chen? Vegans. Uh, but we are going to look very carefully at Exodus chapter 12 and just ask the question, what's with the lamb? Now, uh, just to bring you up to speed with our series in the Old Testament book of Exodus, which is what we're looking at all term, we're calling it exit because that's what Exodus means. It means to exit, to depart. It means a way out. And we've seen already how God's people multiplied greatly in Egypt, but they were brutally enslaved by Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We learned how God saw his people suffering, how he heard their cries of anguish, how he was concerned about them, and how he resolved to come down to rescue them. And he did that firstly by appearing to Moses out of this burning bush and revealing his name, uh, as Emily shared with us at the start, I am who I am. Yahweh, in other words, or Lord, all in capital letters, a God of personal covenant faithfulness. And then last week we saw how he put that faithfulness to himself and to his promises and to his people into action through a series of devastating plagues upon the land of Egypt. And if you were, if you were with us, you remember that we learned from the plagues that God is mighty and he is powerful over the elements of of creation, like the River Nile, like weather patterns through that you know that extraordinary hailstorm we read last week in Exodus chapter nine. He's powerful over the sun, but we also learnt that he is powerful and mighty over the gods the Egyptians thought had power over you know Harpi, the the god of the Nile, over Seth, the god of storms and chaos, over Ra. The sun god, and even over Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who set himself up as God, supreme against the Lord, the God of the Israelites, the God of the universe, our God, foolishly. We saw that the plagues also teach us that God is just, that in his righteousness, he deals with people according to their sins, thinking especially of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people who served him in his monstrous regime. And it really was monstrous. And yet we saw the plague surprisingly reveal that God is also merciful, bringing salvation and deliverance to those who cry out to him in humility. And if you think about it, each one of those has a very practical significance for our lives. If God is mighty over the elements of creation and the gods and kings of the world, then he still rules over heaven and earth and he's got the power to help us in every situation. That's why we pray, isn't it? Very practical. Since he is just, we can wait for him to judge his enemies. That means we don't have to lust after revenge. Since he's merciful, he will save us when we cry for help. And we can expect him to extend that salvation to others. Very practical things. But I remind and retell all that from last week because our discussion of Passover today falls against a very heavy backdrop of the tenth and final plague upon Egypt, the plague on the firstborn sons of Egypt, which reveals God's might and his justice and his salvation in the most plain and severe way. And if your pride had blinded you to God's supreme power through those earlier nine plagues, as it evidently had done for Pharaoh, well, you just can't escape that reality now. The firstborn son of all the Egyptians from the king in the palace to the son of the slave girl working in the mill to even the offspring of the cow in the field, all going to perish. But do just ponder that firstborn of the king for a moment, the very prince of Egypt, because he was in fact a god in waiting. At least that's what the Egyptians thought. They thought that when this particular pharaoh, this king died, his son would become a god. But in the 10th plague, yes, even the prince of Egypt was dead. That God in waiting was no more. And the Egyptian gods of death, like Osiris and Anubis, they were also defeated. You know, They could not save a single Egyptian household, and yet no Israelite was touched. And so the 10th plague does not only again show us that God is uh, mighty over creation... Mighty over the gods of Egypt. It also reveals God's just judgment against Pharaoh and against Egypt. And you have to remember, you just, you just can't feel sorry for Pharaoh. Uh, he is just monstrous. You remember that previously the Egyptians tried to exterminate all the Israelite baby boys by killing them at birth. Then by throwing them into the river Nile to drown. And so what you have here is a very proportionate response. What you've got here is a match. You've got justice. Justice. It's now Egypt's turn to cry out in distress. And ultimately it was an act of mercy, uh, which is obvious for the Israelites, who would later leave Egypt with the gold and silver of the Egyptians freely gifted to them. But you cannot help but think it did not have to be this bad for Egypt. I mean, God had mercifully given them plenty of warning uh, before and within nine previous plagues. And then he announces this deadliest one in advance. Quite simply, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, should have acknowledged the bleedingly obvious and let the Israelites go. Now that's Pharaoh. I mean, who knows the story of every other single Egyptian? We do know that some had come to acknowledge the power of the Lord, we know that some honored his prophet, Moses, our guy. Uh, We know that they handed over their property to the Israelites, even if that was just to kind of get them out of Egypt quickly. But we also know that some Egyptians left Egypt along with the Israelites, having experienced the mercy of God. Anyway, that's a bit beside the point, isn't it? Because the sparing of the Egyptians is not the focus of this text. The focus of this text is on the sparing, the deliverance, the passing over of Israel, God's people of old. And so how did they escape this 10th plague on firstborn sons? Well, as it turns out, it's got something to do with the lamb. And specifically, the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb saved Israel. And when I say it saved Israel, I mean it saved Israel from death. Now, when we think of the book of Exodus, typically we think about being delivered from slavery, about being rescued from oppression, about exiting Egypt. But with this threatened tenth plague, plague on the firstborn son, we are talking about being saved from death. We may not realise this, but just like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death themselves, as God would visit each and every home that night. They also were guilty of rejecting the word of God through the prophet Moses, We read later in the book of Joshua, they were guilty of sharing in the idol worship of the Egyptians. In fact, they were guilty of sharing in the same sin and rebellion that is common to all humanity, from Adam onwards, just as we are. And the simple truth is that if God had not provided a means of salvation, they too would have suffered the loss of their firstborn sons. Now, I reckon it would be easy for the Israelites... Natural, I guess, just as it's natural for many kinds of religious people to think that they're in a separate category from others. A better category, really, to think that they're, maybe I should say we're, a better class of people. Friends, we will not see our need for salvation until we accept that we are guilty like everyone else and we are completely subject to the just judgment of God. Egyptians, Israelites us and so when we look at this story we're talking about a matter of life and death but it's not just more interesting to the israelites it's also interesting to us and uh friends that really is reflected at the start of exodus 12 Uh, i hope you've got it open there where we discover that it is such a big deal what's about to happen that god is going to create a new calendar for his people the israelites have a look exodus chapter 12 verse 2 now this month is to be for you the first month the first month of your year, he's saying, this is so important. The way that we measure time is going to change on account of this event. You know, there have been times in history, haven't there, where people have tried to change calendars to suit their own purposes. I think Pol Pot in Cambodia tried to introduce a nine-day week to kind of completely isolate his people from the Western world. It didn't work out as it turns out because <laughs> it's such a massive deal to create a new calendar but what is about to happen to God's people Israel with this Passover is such a massive deal that it's worthy of throwing out the old way of measuring time in order to commemorate it so it changes the whole calendar and it involves the whole community every household every family takes a land And when God specifies what he wants from the sacrifice, kicks off the new calendar that involves the whole community, he's keen for there to be proportionality. Have a look at verse 3. Each man is to take a lamb, one for his household, one for his family. But if a household is too small for a lamb, verse 4 should share it with a neighbour. But make sure you take into account the number of people there are. Because the amount of lamb you would need would be worked out in accordance with what each person will eat, even if that kind of involves teaming up with a close neighbour. You see, there needs to be a match. There's this sense of kind of proportionality between the sacrifice and the people that it relates to. Then we see in verse 5 that the lamb or the the goat, you could use either, was to be used uh, for the sacrifice. It had to be like a year-old male without defect. It had to be a Perfect sacrifice, in other words. It couldn't just be the old scraggly sheep you got in your paddock, can't walk properly, it's probably going to die in the next two weeks anyway, uh, or some other animal that would be useless in breeding. God says, I don't want the dregs. I don't want the runts. I'm after the perfect animal, if you like, without defect. It was a prime beast. It was perfect breeding stock. It was costly to the provider. And it would really become one of the family. I wonder if you picked up just the idea that there'd be an identification of this animal and the family that it would later represent. But think about it, verse 3. On the 10th day of the month, each household takes a perfect animal without defect into the household. And they to care for the frisky young lamb as it kind of prances around playfully in the house for four full days. Until in verse 6 it says the 14th day of the month where they would slaughter the animal. Uh, in my household at the moment there is an immense amount of pressure to get a dog. Number one son, he's not interested at all in a dog. Number two son would really like a dog. Number three son would rather have a dog in their household than me. He would just love one and so the pressure is building and in the past, which I think I've shared with you, we've kind of looked after dogs um, that have belonged to friends for a week here and there, and, and that's been a mixed experience. Uh, some of those have been traumatic experiences, like mainly for me. I think I think the dogs have all enjoyed themselves. Some have been great experiences, where our friend's dog has just sort of slotted into family life, and we've all kind of enjoyed it. And see, here was I, like, stupidly thinking that just a week here or there, like a little visit from. Rex or Charlie or Rusty, whoever it was, would be enough for sons number two and three. But all it did was just pour fuel on their burning fire of desire to have their own puppy. Like, it's a bit ridiculous, actually. When, you know, little Rex or Charlie or Rusty, whoever it is, when it's time for them to leave our place after their week's holiday with us, son number three, he doesn't just mope around the house, but the little corners of his mouth turn down, and his, lip, his bottom lip starts to quiver a little bit and he starts talking in that funny kind of truncated way where you know he's really, really upset and he has just felt the loss of the animal so acutely because even in the space of a few days, you see, it had become one of the family. So just imagine you've got a fluffy lamb in your house, your small house, night and day for four days. And it's, now it's not just... One of those sheep in a paddock, it's your lamb in your living room and you've come to identify that little lamb as being a part of your family. Well, lastly, there will be a sign. Uh, verse 7, they take some of the blood, they put it painted, I guess, on the door frames and the doorposts of their houses. Verse 13, that would be a sign to the people that their house will be spared, they'll be saved. It'll be a sign for the Lord that his destroying angel will pass over that house quite literally so that no destructive plague will touch that house. And uh, if you're kind of new to the Christian faith or or it's your first time with us or whatever it is, maybe it all sounds a bit kind of random. Um, Maybe it sounds a bit um, like whatever the opposite of clinical is, a bit messy. I mean, it's no children's storybook or fairy tale, is it? It's certainly a grown-up book at this point. Can you imagine what it must have been like? You've got a fluffy lamb in your living room for four days and you play with him and you cuddle him and you, you feed him and, and you love him and then you have to slit its throat and somehow you've got to save the blood that's kind of spurting out or bubbling out of the wound and you've got to put it on your door frames. You know, I, I tried to imagine what that would be like in my household and our sons, number two and three, man, they would be hysterical for, and not in a good way. And I imagine that son number one, who's not really into animals, he would look at me and he would say, Dad, what'd you go and do that for? (laughs) And I would have to look at him and I would have to say, Son, if it wasn't the lamb, it's you. It's either the lamb or it's you, man. That's the way it shakes. So I realise it can all seem a bit random. And maybe it's, uh, it's a bit gruesome for those of us who've always lived in the city and we never connect eating meat with the death of an animal. But actually, friends, it's not random at all. The blood shows us that what is required for salvation is the offering of an unblemished lamb. In fact, anybody who wants to stand with God can only come on the basis of the lamb he has provided. It is always costly and there is always blood because it involves the death of an unblemished one. And that blood, friends, it is not random. That blood signifies that they had a substitute, that a lamb had died in their place. It's either the lamb or it's a firstborn son. You think about it, friends, the Israelites, they were whisked away from this plague of the firstborn. They were there. When the destroying angel went from house to house, inflicting God's just judgment on each house. Have a look in your Bibles, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down the firstborn in Egypt. Part of his justice, part of his right justice... From the firstborn of Pharaoh, to the firstborn of the prisoner, to the firstborn of the livestock, the Israelites were all there. Verse 30 is true in its most literal sense. There was not a house in Egypt without someone dead. It's either a firstborn or it's a Passover lamb. That's how it shakes. And they weren't whisked away, but they were shielded from the same fate as the Egyptians because in their houses the judgment was poured out on a substitute On a lamb who took the place of the firstborn son. Now, theologians, you know, Bible scholars, they sometimes call this substitutionary atonement. But in in essence, it means the punishment for one person's sin is taken by another who is called the substitute. It means this person, the substitute, suffers the punishment due to the other. It means the one person without fault takes the punishment due to another person with fault. But only by dealing with it, by somebody taking the punishment or the judgment that is due to sin, only by dealing with it can God be just. And only by means of a substitute can God do a proper job of saving the Israelites, not just from the Egyptians but from death itself. And so they lived through the terrible judgment of the plague on the firstborn and quite literally God passed over them, sparing them. And when Pharaoh tells them to go in verse 31... They leave Egypt in their millions. And you'll see from verse 14 onwards that this Passover, it would be an annual celebration, commemoration. They'd eat bitter herbs because that would remind them of the, the terribly bitter experience they had under their slave drivers in Egypt. And they would eat unleavened bread, standing up, which would remind them that on that night there was not time to let the bread rise, for they would leave in haste. And they would eat a Passover lamb year after year after year, because this Passover lamb saved them from death. I remember walking out of an underground station when I used to live in London and uh, somebody stopped me, someone from another English-speaking country stopped me for directions. And the opening line was, excuse me, do you speak English here? So I thought it was interesting, seeing as we're in England, you know. I mean, even if you couldn't make out the connection that London was the capital of England, you would have thought the, the billboards, you know, the posters, street names would give it away, The signs were there. But, you know, sometimes people need things um, just kind of spelled out. So I just bit my tongue and I said, yes, we do, in fact, speak English here in England. You'll find there is a close connection between the two. And sometimes it's just worth making the connection obvious and explicit, isn't it? Uh, I mean, some of us will look at this and, and we won't go, gee, that's a random story about lamb. We go, yeah, man, I get it. Of course that is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us will think those connections are obvious, but I think it's worth drawing it out. It's worth making it plain. I mean, you'd notice that we don't celebrate Passover anymore as Christians, but it's significant. It's not coincidental that Jesus was executed at the time of Passover. That's kind of God's way of making the connection kind of clear but the Apostle Paul in the New Testament makes it even more explicit when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, for Christ, what does he call him? Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And that's the last thing we need to say today. Christ is our Passover lamb who saves us from sin and death. He is our Passover lamb and he was sacrificed when he was killed on a cross in our place for our sins. That means he is our substitute to spare us from the judgment of God so we could instead be in right standing and in right relationship with God. But think about the connections. Like the Passover lamb in Exodus, there was a match, wasn't there, between the lamb sacrificed and the people in each household. Christ was the right match for us. He fitted us. His sacrifice doesn't come up short in any way. Not being just a man, but being the perfect man. And being fully God, nonetheless, his sacrifice does not come up short in any way. Like the year-old male kind of goat or lamb without defect, the unblemished sacrifice, Jesus remains a perfect sacrifice. The only person who ever walked this earth who remained sinless and blameless, So so, so much so that the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ who was a lamb without blemish or defect. Like the Passover lamb, he became one of us, a part of the family, if you will, walking the same ground we tread upon, breathing the same air that we breathe, not just for four days, but for 30-odd years sharing our humanity and being one with us. And there are many other connections that we could draw. Jesus is our Passover lamb. I wonder if you've ever noticed reading through the Gospels, you get to the bit where uh, the Gospel records the Lord's Supper, where Jesus redefines this Passover celebration to refer to himself, and there's mention of the bread, there's mention of the wine. There's no mention of lamb. I wonder if that's because the lamb wasn't on the table. The lamb was sitting at the table, about to be slaughtered the very next day. Friends, he is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. He was the right fit for us. He was a match. He had become a part of the family identifying with us and he was the perfect sacrifice, without blemish. The blood of the Passover lamb in Exodus shows us that what is required for salvation is the offering of an unblemished lamb. Without blood, there is no forgiveness. So like the Israelites were invited to, we need to trust in the blood of our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Slaughtering the animal back in those days, painting the doorposts with its blood was an act of faith and obedience. We are invited to have faith, to trust in the blood of Christ, our substitute, which was poured out on a wooden cross so that we might be spared spiritual death, which is the inevitable consequence of our sin and rebellion unless we turn to him. We simply must see that for salvation God requires the offering of an unblemished one, then and now. But it is delightful to see that what God requires he also provides, don't you think? Though it remains costly. The day of Abraham, God spared the life of Isaac, that's a single boy, with the provision of a ram. Here in the days of Exodus, a sacrificed lamb would spare a whole family. When we open the New Testament to John's Gospel, chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said these words, Look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. The Lamb of God who does not just take away the sins of one person or even kind of one family, but whose sacrifice can cover the sins of the whole world. That is for anyone who would turn and trust in him. What God requires a perfect sacrifice, he has provided in Jesus. It's big enough to take away the sins of the world, which means it becomes of you and I to turn and trust in him. And if you haven't yet done it, it is something you ought to do today. The act of faith and obedience that God requires of us this day is not to paint the doorposts of our door with blood, but God is looking for a humble heart, And a contrite spirit that will turn to him and say, I trust in you and in the blood of your son. So let me ask you politely, humbly, respectfully have you turned to him? And if you had, are you trusting in him today? He is the Lamb of God, He is our Passover Lamb, and He has been sacrificed. Now, friends, as we finish, we all know that Australians are uh, pretty partial to lamb, aren't we? just tastes good. But what God has done with the Passover lamb in Egypt, and moreover, what he did with the sacrificial death of his son, our Passover lamb, our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is more than just good. By the blood of the lamb, we are saved from sin. By the blood of the lamb, we are saved from death. And nothing but the blood of Jesus can do that. Have you turned to Him, and are you trusting in Him for salvation? I'm going to finish our time by praying. Uh, the band's going to come up, and uh, we're going to sing about this sort of stuff. But uh, why don't you join with me in praying? Lord God, we do praise you for your extraordinary uh, provision of a sacrifice that would take the punishment that people deserve so that they might be spared. And so we praise you for doing that for your people of old in Egypt in the days of Exodus. But we praise you for doing that for us in the person of your Son. And Lord, for those of us who trust in anything other than the blood, that is the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, for our sins in our place, For those of us who trust in anything other than that for our salvation, disturb us, please. And for those of us who fear that that just possibly couldn't do the job, warm our spirits so that we know it's nothing but the blood of Jesus that saves us, that spares us, that brings us back into right standing and right relationship with you. pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.